0: You're listening to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countryman. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our series of bonus podcasts, In Between Seasons, conversations between me and filmmakers about some recent 30 for 30 films. Now, before we get going, if you haven't listened to our first season of audio documentaries, you should. You can find those at 30for30podcast.com slash season one. There's also a link in the description of this episode. Go take a listen. Anyway, this week on 30 for 30 Plus, I'm joined by Dan Forer, director of the film Mike and the Mad Dog, the new 30 for 30 about the legendary radio team of Mike Francesa and Chris Mad Dog Russo. For five and a half hours each day for a glorious 19-year run, Mike and the Mad Dog pioneered sports talk on WFAN Radio in New York City. It's perhaps the most popular sports radio show of all time and one that launched a thousand imitators. This was a really fun film to watch and a very fun conversation to have. Take a listen.
1: Expanded coverage for the New York sports fan. WFAN 1050 AM. Good afternoon, everybody.
2: How are you today? I'm Mike Francesa. Christopher Russo. If you don't live in New York, it's very possible that you have no idea who Mike Francesa and Chris Russo are. If it's status quo, then it's status but quo. It's, but the owners don't want that, Mike. So to- there's two sides here. One o'clock became the place to go to get that sports fix. But this isn't like a tea party. All right? It's a sports talk radio.
0: So obviously there's two big personalities at the heart of this story, but there's actually a third element as well. And that's kind of where I want to start, which is the fans. Can you describe what a Mike and a Mad Dog fan is? Who are these people?
1: Oh The fans for Mike and the Mad Dog basically span two generations. When they started, there was the core group and these were primarily male, but there were some women. They spanned all different races. A lot of people have said, oh, it's basically a white middle class male. No. Now, you had the high enders down in Wall Street who listened to uh, Mike and Chris. You had taxi cab drivers. You had laborers. Uh, You had women who listened to them. You had African-Americans. You had Latinos. They, They had what is New York, that melting pot of New York, is who listened to them. And there is this
0: notion that I think the film does a good job of dispelling because you talk to some longtime callers and they're like, Normal people, right? But there's this notion that the people who call in to talk radio shows are, the, are like holed up in their basement listening all day. Mm-hmm. And I think you do a good job of pointing out that, no, it's really the full panoply of, of New Yorkers who are
1: connected. Yeah. The voice of New York aspect of it is a polite way of saying they did not sound like professional radio announcers. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. But they sound like somebody you're familiar with, somebody you knew, somebody you were comfortable sitting at the end of a bar with and debating. And so everybody felt comfortable. And they make a big distinction between the listeners, who they have the utmost respect for and are totally appreciative of, and the callers, who yeah. they say are performers. And if you're going to be a performer, there's a chance you might get booed. You might get booed off stage. You know, in a way, it's, sometimes it was a gong show, and Mike had that gong.
2: Uh, how, how? Who fixed the game and how? Not, not that it fits, but I think it's maybe certain players like purposely strike out if they're told to do so. No, we've gone far enough with this nonsense. I mean, I, like I said, I knew it was going to be dumb from the beginning. You better know what you're effing talking the three about. Of the, three of us, because us did. Because if you didn't know what you were talking about, if you got your facts mixed up, you
1: got eviscerated.
2: Tahari Kennebra was a 256 lifetime hitter. We got to kick him out of the Hall of Fame, too.
1: They were um, very much. Part of New York, and I think people very much embrace them because of that. At one point,
0: there's a clip of a call, and the caller says, I listen because I hate you guys. Why
2: you I listen because I hate you guys. Oh, you oh, listen because you hate That's the bottom line, Tom.
1: I think that's true across all walks of talk radio, whether they be political, it be news, it be sports. You don't care whether they love you or hate you as long as they listen to you. Mike used to say he could close his eyes and see the viewers, you know, in their cars driving on the uh, expressway or crossing George Washington Bridge, or somebody in a taxi going to the airport listening to them. And it all felt like they were one. They all felt that they were part of a family.
0: Okay, we've talked about the relationship with the callers. But obviously, this story is really about the relationship between the two of them in many ways. So how would you describe it? And I guess, what does it teach us about chemistry? that's the word that I kept thinking of when watching this film. These guys have chemistry, but I couldn't really pinpoint exactly
1: what that means. Well, they're combustible. What we had here was a love story. It was a love story that lasted 19 years. And there were ups and downs, and there were touching moments between the couple, and there were hard moments between the couple. And in the end, it ended up resolving in a breakup of the couple of divorce. But over the course of the 19 years, there was no question there was so much love between these two people because together they had something special that they do not have apart. There's
0: this amazing stretch where you talk about the power chair.
2: Radio has a power chair. The chair that looks at the control room. The power chair is where the king
1: sits, the, the leader, the alpha dog. Mike takes a big guy chair facing the control room. I miss his chair.
2: And dogs off to the side. How I wound up with the power chair, top of my head, I don't remember. Uh, I don't know that it was a big argument, but somehow I won it.
1: The power chair is a chair that faces the control room. It's the point where a person who can actually communicate with the engineers, the bring, person bringing in out of the college. The very first show, Mike, as he says, he doesn't know how he got it, but he somehow ended up in the power chair. And, <laughs>
0: somehow. And Chris
1: <laughs> ended up on the side. And this was indicative of the fact that at the beginning of the show, Mike felt superior to Chris. That Chris could Chris could not hold his own in a sports argument with Mike. He was the dominant one. He was the alpha dog. He was the one in control. And Chris was off to the side. And at the time, Chris felt he had to prove himself to Mike, that he may not be worthy of this position on the show with him. Over time, Mike readily admits he was proven incorrect, that Chris could more than handle An argument with him in sports, and that he was just his equal in this, and that's what made them so good. But Mike held the power chair throughout the show, throughout the whole lineage. But he gave up something. Um, He allowed Chris to start every show. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? To end every show. And so there was a trade-off here, a mutual respect of who did what within it.
0: You mentioned that Francesa did a good job of, you know, coming to see Russo as his equal. Oh, yes. But do you think he genuinely got—I mean, it's still Mike and the Mad Dog. You know, Mike gets his real name in the title. Mad Dog gets a nickname. There's always
1: been a sidekick element there, hasn't there? No. <laughs> uh, at that point, when they put them together, he was Mad Dog. Mm-hmm. That was his name. Um, uh, raceman man of the Daily News had given that name after a Canadian wrestler. But when they were coming up with the name for the show, Mad Dog and Mike just doesn't sound good. (laughs) And everybody agreed, Mad Dog and Mike doesn't work. It has to be Mike and the Mad Dog. So Mike ended up with his name first, his own name. He ended up with the power chair. And you know he was flexing his muscles. He did not want to be paired with Chris. Chris did not want to be paired with him. And uh, people in the papers were saying they should have their own separate shows. And they were saying, hey, we agree, separate us. Unfortunately, they were too good. (laughs) And people loved hearing them. When they started, they were um, tenth in uh, in the ratings. Nine months later, they were number one in the ratings, and for the first time, WFAN could see that there was profit in the future, and they were not going to separate them. Sure, but
0: it is it is interesting that for a while it seems like everyone understood that they were good together, but them and the people in that building.
2: People are writing commentaries. FANs crazy to put them together. They're better apart. We both think we're better apart. So Every time somebody does that, we say, we agree. We don't belong together.
1: Both of them wanted their own shows. They did not want to be paired. They didn't want to spend five and a half hours, 27 plus hours a week on the air together. But the amazing thing was, sometimes things, as they say in the Yiddish, are besheret. They're meant to be. This was meant to be. In the context
0: of the media environment that they came up in, you know, the power of talk radio. I mean, this film is such a good reminder of just how big of an impact sports talk radio
1: had at that point
0: in the late 80s into the the 90s. The
1: truth is it didn't. That was the beauty of it. They had guys doing an hour here or a little bit of a pregame show before a game, postgame show, a little bit of talk, but it was not that big at all. It was overlooked. Nobody cared. Nobody saw that there was potential there. And suddenly they came on and they came on as a tandem together, a team and it caught fire, and it caught fire quickly. When they started, a sports talk radio was at best a, a million dollar business um, with for a handful of stations across the country. Depending on who you speak to, anywhere from three to five stations around the country were doing it. Quickly, people started noticing. Other stations started noticing. Within a few years, there were hundreds of stations, and today there are thousands of stations. And it went from a million dollar industry to a billion dollar industry. These are the guys responsible for it. No one else. And it also fit their show
0: and, and Sports Talk Radio, as it exploded in the way you describe, kind of fit just like the news cycle and the news ecosystem in this really interesting way. It's like the papers come out in the morning and talk about yesterday. Right. But then by the time you get to 1 p.m., everyone has like all these new takes and all these new ideas gearing up for, you know, the, that night's games or whatever. And they didn't have anywhere to go.
2: One o'clock became the place to go every day to get that sports fix they knew what the beat of new york city was and what people wanted to talk about and hear we knew what the listener was a male who goes to games drinks beer a white collar fan down on wall street loved to listen and a blue collar fan who was a cab driver loved to listen
1: at 1 o'clock, people would tune in to get their take on what happened yesterday and their projections of what would happen in the future. But they would also have the ability to schedule whatever guests they want. I think the only guest they never got was Joe DiMaggio. But whether it was a general manager, a manager, a player, they could get them. Pat Riley used to go on the, on the air with them every game, an hour before the game, and give them time, uh, you know, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And the beauty of that is they were the fans, the questions that the fans wanted to ask, they would ask. And they didn't care who the person was or what the reaction would be. They were going to ask the tough questions. And they did it time and time and time again. And people loved it. And their power was such that the general managers and the managers could not stay away. They had to go on and they had to answer them. They couldn't dodge them.
0: Five and a half hours a day. Yes. I
1: just can't still can't get over that. It is an awful long time. I learned in doing um, the project, we all suddenly realized that there was a method. And part of the method is, tell them what you're gonna tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So you have a, a rhythm of repeating things three times. And then later on in the show, an hour or two later, different audience, doing it over again. So there is some repetition to it. But still, five and a half hours is an awful long time. Where most people build to a tease, And they tease across the the, the break, and then they come back and they tell the story. The beauty of Mike and Chris, you start listening to them. I'm going to listen to them for a minute, a couple of minutes, and they start getting into a discussion or a debate.
2: I'm not saying the Yankees don't deserve to go to the World Series. What I'm saying is, is that last night, I don't care what any Yankee fan says. And, and how Yankee and fans leave the, the stadium last night, tell me what a great word is A bunch of
1: cops. And so it's one discussion that goes on sometimes for 20 minutes, a half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, and they're debating each other with the same intensity that they did when it started. The kid is totally,
2: the kid to, is, no, no, he stop made excuses. Oh,
1: stop. And so the beauty of them was it was authentic, it was real, and the passion was such that the, the audience would be drawn in. And have to listen and couldn't turn it off. I think it was Chris who told me that, you know, they always wanted to pass the driveway test. And, and, and I said, what's the driveway test? He said, it's when we've got somebody in the car listening and they get to their destination, they get home, they pull into the driveway and they stay in their car and they stay till the end because they don't want to miss something we're going to say.
0: Hopefully that happens, you know, towards the end of the show and not in hour two of a five and a half hour <laughs> show and right. then you're sitting in the driveway. But you just said something about uh, it was authentic. So there is a big debate about sports talk and how authentic it is and whether it's, you know, performative arguing for arguing's sake Mm -hmm. or whether it's genuine passion.
1: Where did these guys come down on that? Oh, if you ask anybody, they will tell you that Mike and Chris are the same for the most part off the air that they are on the air. They will also tell you that they're in their heyday when they were getting along and things were going good. They would go to commercial. And during the commercial, the argument would continue. They would go off the air and the argument would continue. They would come back the next day and the argument would continue.
2: It, can't be good. it takes two minutes to go to the bathroom. But it doesn't take you five minutes. Yes, it, it does. At Yankee Stadium? No, at Fenway Park, it well, takes two hours. Mike, we're talking about Yankee Stadium here. It can take a while to oh, go to God. Oh, yes, I it can. Get over, you nuts.
1: And this is because this is their life. This is their love. This is what they care about. They care about winning their debate not for winning's sake, although they want to do that, but because they believe they are right. You know, there were times where Mike actually said, there were a few times when you know uh, he realized that you know he may be wrong. He would never acknowledge it on the air, but he realized that Chris was making points. And so, yeah, there were times they agreed, and they would not take positions just to be opposed to each other. Again, authenticity. They were not going to defend a position that they did not truly believe. And then, of course, they built just... Dozens and hundreds of
0: imitators around the country. And one of my favorite moments is this montage <laughs> of, like, you know, really awful carbon co- copies <laughs> of Mike and Mad Dog yeah. from, like, Pittsburgh and, you know. Well,
2: isn't that refreshing to know what Mark Carrion thinks, considering he sucks. Bunch of schleps, schmucks, and putts from Pittsburgh. Everybody tried to create the chemistry that was Mike and me. Everybody tried to create that chemistry.
0: There's great sports talk in a lot of places, but there was this moment where everyone was, like, basically, like, we need to get, get our serious sports nerd and his
1: zany sidekick and we need to ha- like basically recreate this show in our market. I wouldn't hold too much against most of those guys because they were performers, just like Mike and Chris. and this is what they were being told to do. This is how they were being told how to perform. A few of them, yeah, fit the bill, uh, but most of them were trying to act a part that was uncomfortable for them. Um, and Mike and Chris kind of looked at them and just kind of shook their heads. you know and as Mike has said, no one ever did it better and no one ever will do it better. Uh, because of the chemistry they had
0: you get Mike Francesa to admit that he at least admit that he gets called arrogant I don't know if he ever admits admits that he He is called arrogant
2: he got called arrogant a lot and I'll plead guilty of that because I think when you are confident in your opinions you get called arrogant
1: and no one would argue with any aspect of that statement. It's almost an arrogant statement. A, a, right. <laughs> He's, he is confident in his opinions. He states them, you know, strongly. And as a result, people call him arrogant. He, but, t- he wears that as a badge of honor. But were, are there
0: ever moments, you know, you I'm sure you listened to hundreds of hours of tapes yes. of these guys. <laughs> um, were there ever moments where you just kind of cringed at the, at the
1: persona, at least the on-air persona? No. Really? No, never cringed, laughed, chuckled said, oh, my goodness, but always aware that they are in show business and they are putting on a show. And they know their craft as best, as as good as anybody. So they know when they can go, for the most part, when they can go to certain places and where to stop. Every now and then they'd have an interview subject who would come on who wasn't ready for the tough questions. I mean, there's a scene with A-Rod. Oh i mean i will
0: never be able to unsee the face that a-rod gives when they start asking him some questions and he's just sitting there in the studio i don't know what is what is his emotion in that moment and what what will describe the questions that they're asking him and then tell well me.
1: they're basically saying you know what we think you'd be happy elsewhere you don't seem to be happy here and a-rod has this stunned look on his face uh kind of like i can't believe you asked that question and you know what you may be right um The beauty of it is A-Rod was one of the people who jumped at the opportunity to join us and to give his thoughts about Mike and Chris. Mm -hmm. So even having gone through that, he respects them. I think everybody does respect them uh, uh, for what they've done and the guts they had to ask the tough questions, even when somebody is sitting right next to you. We'll be back with more about Mike
0: and the Mad Dog in a minute. But first, a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Uh, This film is really about three things. It's about the relationship of Mike and Chris. It's about the remarkable and entertaining show that they created and why it was so popular. And it is about the tremendous impact that they had on the sports media industry in creating Sports Talk Radio. The story is humorous, a lot of laughs. The story is emotional. They talk about their faults. They acknowledge where they were wrong, where they were right, how silly some of their debates were on and off the air and it ends very emotionally there are some not feel-good moments between the two of them
0: i mean when it goes bad it goes pretty bad between them no idea what you're talking about (laughs) the mad dog is making nice tonight chris mad dog russo is denying reports he and co-host mike francesa are splitting up their popular sports talk show on wfan radio You know, part of this film is that their relationship sours and that they just spend too many hours in a room together and just start to it just starts to devolve. What was really at the heart
1: of their tension? The heart of their tension was that they'd been on air married at that point for 17 years and um, they were ready for it to end. They had had enough of each other or at least they needed maybe they needed a break. Mike might might have said a break in them back together. I think Chris was ready to say, you know what, I'm done here. He said it wasn't fun anymore. Uh, and an opportunity presented itself. Uh, he discussed it with his uh, agent, Sandy Montag, and they decided to take it. But the problem was, down the home stretch, he was told he had to keep it secret. He couldn't tell anybody that he was leaving, and he didn't. But Mike found out anyway.
2: I felt it was handled very badly. I still do to this day. And I was sad that it didn't work out. So I signed that release on a Thursday. I faxed it back to, the, to, to FAN. And once I did that, I was dead to him. What I should have done is I should have told Mike, hey, I should have been more upfront with him right from the get-go. I know that's in difficult way. How are you supposed to tell the guy? You, know, you tell your wife, you're thinking about getting divorced. You either think or you get.
0: But then it leads to this moment, this remarkable show, the final show, I guess, where they were not planning to have Chris on on the final Mike and Mad Dog show, And then
1: Chris calls it. Is that right? Well, Mark Chernoff, the program director, told uh, Chris, "Okay, you're done. You're out of here. As Chris says, uh, I signed the papers uh, and uh, I was dead to them. Uh, They told Mike, you're not to have Chris. He's done. He's not to have him on. And Mike said, you know what? That's not right. Uh, We owe it to each other. We owe it to the fans. Uh, He needs a chance to say goodbye we need a chance to end our relationship properly uh so semi-against orders you know, chernoff says he didn't mind him calling and he just didn't want him in the studio uh, chris called in uh and it was extremely emotional to the point where chris couldn't talk and chris started crying and you can hear him crying
2: mike knew me before i knew Ro, before he had three kids i knew mike before i had four kids and knew my wife so You know, it wasn't an easy call. I'm going to miss that
1: show. Mike is touched by this. Mike tries to keep it together. You can see he's touched, but he's not losing it. And then uh, they say goodbye, and Chris gets off the air, and we think, okay, it's over and done with. And then shortly thereafter, Chris's father calls in, who Mike had a very close relationship with. And Chris's father asks Mike, even though his son is gone and not part of the show anymore, is it okay for him to still call in?
2: Uh, one thing I want to ask you: Will I can I call you at any time? <laughs> oh, you're killing me, Tony. Yes, yes, anytime, Tony. Anytime.
1: This uh, just uh, hit Mike really, really hard to the point where uh, I think he started tearing up a little bit. He takes off his glasses. You see him wipe his eyes. Oh, yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, and that was the end of it. Uh, when that was gone, after that, Mike got it together and finished the last, I guess, four hours of the show by himself. But it was clear that uh, you know, this was the, uh, the the formality of uh, of 19 years coming to a close, um, and it was uh, it was really touching. You could see at that point, you could see the love that they had one for one another, without question.
0: There is a what happened to Mike post Mad Dog conversation. Um, to me. Mike
1: wanted to prove that. He could solo, and that he could be number one in the biggest market in America on his own. And uh, he has done that. I don't think he's ever fallen below two, and primarily he's been number one. Chris, I think, really needed to prove that he didn't need Mike. And he moved on to uh, Mad Dog uh, on Sirius. And uh, he's done extremely well. The, uh, the irony is they're both extremely successful. Mike's kind of doing a similar show to what they were doing. And Chris is a totally different show. It's all nationally focused. Yeah. It should be noted, though, that even when they were together five days a week, 27 hours, they each came in separately on the weekends and did their own individual shows on the weekends as a reminder to say, I can do this by myself. I don't need the other guy.
0: Yeah.
1: What's their relationship like today? Very good. Very, very It's It's been good for quite a while. And, and, you know, uh, over the years, people thought they got along terribly. There were periods where they didn't get along great. But they'll say they had so much fun and that they really enjoyed each other. And for all the major moments in life, births and weddings, they were there for each other. Um, They've been on each other's shows over the last few years. They get along pretty darn well. Uh, I know they have tremendous respect for each other. Uh, They've done some events for charity. They can sit down and turn it back on in a snap. And it's like nothing has changed. Like we are back in, you know, the 1990s and they're doing it again. And
0: of course, now rumors are swirling about them possibly getting back together. And
1: your film is not, a, is
0: not doing much to dissuade
1: those, right? Well, it, it, we didn't mean to play matchmaker, uh-huh. you know, uh, but uh, uh, something happened after the premiere. Uh, Andrea Joyce of NBC Sports, was doing Q&A with both Mike and Chris.
2: Were People can't realize that now. The Knicks, the Knicks were huge. enormous, you know? Remember, there was a time, folks, when dinosaurs walked the earth where the Knicks actually used to win. <laughs> Just pretend that they're back together again. How great did that sound, right?
1: <laughs> and whenever uh, Mike has been approached about them getting back together, he's always said, no, not going to happen. It's not going to happen because, A, it would cost too much money, no one can afford us. Or be it's not going to happen because our contracts are set up in a way that it's not going to be. She asked him about getting uh, back together.
2: Could you see yourselves in some form reuniting and, you know, giving the fans what they want? Yes. That's the first time! How about
1: that? And it got a standing ovation uh, from the thousand people who were at the premiere. And it was the first time that he publicly acknowledged that yeah he would consider doing it.
2: To be honest with you, I don't know what's going to happen. In all seriousness, but would I listen if something was brought up about Mike and the Mad Dog or Mike and the Mad Dog two Yeah, why not? I think it would be fun. I really do. All right, it's first time. Okay, all right. Was it
1: because he had just seen the film and it brought back yeah all these wonderful that memories? Glowy face, right. Uh, I don't know. You know, we will not take credit for it, but if they were to get back together in any capacity, you know, we would applaud like everybody else.
0: I think today was the first time they
2: realized that, like, they real, like, the fans just want them back together. They appreciate what it was now.
0: If Mike and the Mad Dog got back together, uh, I think the world would be a better place. <laughs> well, Dan Forer, thank you so much, and congratulations on this film.
1: Oh, on behalf of everybody who worked on it, thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you. That's Dan Fore, director of Mike
0: and the Mad Dog. You can watch the full film right now in the ESPN app or on iTunes. Go check it out. And again, if you haven't heard our podcast documentaries, you can find them at 30for30podcast.com slash season one or by clicking on the link in this show description. My name is Jody Avergan. This episode was produced in association with Transmitter Media and Katie Simon production also provided by ryan nantel and kate mcauliffe with help from jenna anthony colin Fleming, and adam newhouse special thanks to the tribeca film festival thanks for listening we'll be back soon with more 30 for 30 plus